Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. With that said, I'd like to welcome our author, um, Attica Locke. Yay! Um, I was just, I've, I've, I've been the events manager at Skylar for almost seven years now, and I actually was like, we've hosted Attica, I think, for all of her books, and we've hosted you for four out of your five, which is remarkable. I mean, even among local writers, that's, that's not a, 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 a feat easily achieved. Um, so we really appreciate um, Attica launching her books with us and for you, you guys all uh, attending. Um, so Attica Locke is the author of Pleasantville, which won the 2016 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction and was longlisted, yay, uh, for the Bailey's Women's uh, Prize for Fiction, Blackwater Rising, which was nominated for an Edgar Award. Yeah. Uh, and The Cutting a, Se a Season, a national bestseller and winner of the Ernest Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Uh, she was a writer and producer on the Fox drama Empire. Native of Houston, Texas, Attica lives in Los Angeles, California with her husband and daughter. And she joins us today with her new novel, Heaven My Home. Please welcome Attica Lodge. I have a short walk up here. Hello, everybody. Well, how lovely to close all this book tour stuff out. My chosen home. I was in my real hometown uh, Sunday in Houston. It was lovely, but this is also my home, the home that I chose as a grown-up, uh, which is different than the home you grow up in. So what I think I want to do is set a little bit of the tone, read a couple of minutes about where this book starts, talk about where it came from, and then we'll just kind of have a conversation if you guys want. Um, because this one, this one is, they're all close to my heart. It's always like the latest one feels more close to your heart. But there's some themes in here that were really um, deep for me. So I'm going to read from the beginning. Um, so this is Marion County in Texas in 2016. Dana would have his tail if he didn't make it back across the lake by sundown. She'd said as much when she put him out on the steps of their trailer, which she did the second Rory Pitkin rolled up on his Indian scout with the engine off, the toes of his motorcycle boots dragging in the dirt. She'd given Levi the key to, her to their granddaddy's boathouse and a few dollars from the bottom of her purse and told him he had to be home before Ma and Gil got back or she'd burn all his Pokemon cards and make him watch. Lord, but his sister could be a bitch, he thought, enjoying the knife-like feel of the word so much that he said it out loud, a secret between him and the cypress trees. The rust red light pouring through the Spanish moss told him he'd never make it home by dark, which meant he'd broken two of Mama's rules, missing curfew and boating after dark alone on the lake. Levi was not allowed to take his pappy's old V-bottom skiff into the open waters of Caddo Lake, which was so vast, if you had time, the inclination, and a day's worth of smoked oysters and clean water, you could ride it all the way into Louisiana. Gill said it wasn't nothing like in nowhere else in the country, the only lake uh, to cross two counties in a state line. But Gill said a lot of things that weren't true, that he loved Ma, for one. He sure shit didn't act like it. Levi's real daddy. He used to come up on her frying bologna on the stove and kiss her neck and make her titter and smile, kiss him back. But anytime Gill walked in a room, Ma was just as likely to cuss him as to go stone still with terror. Levi didn't trust Gill any more than he would a smile on a gator. But the water, Levi thought, now that he was traveling it on his own, well, old Gil might have been right about that. Cattle Lake was a monster. 
a body of water that could swallow a boy like him whole. In most places, it resembled a weed-choked swamp more than it did a proper lake, a cypress forest that had flooded and been abandoned eons ago, and Levi could admit he was scared out here alone. Through the open sound south of Goat Island, it was a straight shot to Hopetown, the small community of trailers and shacks on the northeastern shore where Levi lived with his mother and his sister and Gil. He blew away a lick of blonde hair that had slipped over his eyes and gunned the boat's motor. He yanked the tiller left, chancing a shortcut. It was past five o'clock, the sky told him. He didn't, he didn't have time to go home the way he'd come, hugging the north shore of the lake, sailing along a thin canal of relative safety, porch lights on boat houses and craggy lake cabins, twinkling hints of civilization. That would take him nearly an hour, and it would be full-on dark by then, and Levi hadn't brought a flashlight. He'd set out in a thin jacket with nothing on board but Pappy's old radio and a single oar pitted with rot. He'd heard the, the lake went silent come nightfall, Spanish moss on the cypress trees dampening all sound, so that you could feel in this primeval lake on the edge of the state, this swamp at the edge of time, that you were the last man alive. Not that he'd ever been on the water this late, not when his granddaddy was alive. Pappy believed at supper at five o'clock sharp. The swamp loon would have been drying in the boathouse by now. Pappy on his third or fourth beer in front of the TV. The old man steered clear of the lake after dark, always warning Leva how easy it was for a man to get turned around once night fell if he was moving on his own solely by the light of a weak headlamp. The lake was big and complex, the many bayous, tributaries, and inlets like a tangle of snakes on the Texas side at least the part that sat in Marion County. It was a wetland maze that had mystified outsiders for hundreds of years. If you didn't know the lake well, you could easily mistake one cypress tree for another, take the wrong bayou pass, and never find your way out, not in near blackout conditions. The thought made Levi's heart race. The radio shot back on, startling him. It was Patsy Klein, cutting through a burst of static, a station out of Shreveport that switched from Zydeco to country near supper time. Another sign he was late. I go out walking after midnight. Midnight. The word felt like a warning. His granddaddy used to call it spending a night at the Caddo Hotel. Now, don't you ever fart around and end up alone out here at night, son, because ain't a soul going to save you. Pappy was old enough to remember his granddaddy's tales of moonshiners and murderers hiding on the uh, lake's many large islands. Engines and spooks alike, boy. Thieves and Yankees, too. Pappy had grown up with gruesome tales of shootouts and knifings, not to mention ghost stories about souls roaming the waters, haints hiding in the trees. According to Pappy, wasn't no telling how many souls had disappeared out on this water. Thank you. So when I came up with the idea for this book series, it was to tell stories, crime stories along Highway 59 in East Texas. If anybody was here before when I talked about Bluebird, Bluebird, all of my people are from Highway 59, small towns along the highway in, in East Texas. And when I came up with this idea and this character, I knew I would write about Caddo Lake before I had a story. It, before you go read this book, when you go home, Google Caddo Lake and just look, take a good look, and you'll understand why I had to write about it, even though I didn't know what the hell I was going to say. It, it was just that evocative and important to me. And so then once I knew I was going to write about Caddo Lake, um, I had to kind of come up with a story, obviously, that was going to pull in where I left everything with Bluebird, Bluebird. So this sweet little blonde boy in this book happens to be the son of a captain of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. And so in this book, Darren Matthews, our ranger from Bluebird, Bluebird, ends up being called in and asked by his lieutenant to get involved in the case of this missing child. Can you find this child? 
And of course, the lieutenant is saying, well, also while you're there, it is about finding this child, but also we are in the middle of this task force to get these indictments against the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. And this book takes place in December of 2016. Somebody has been elected, but has not been inaugurated yet. So there is a sense for the FBI that there is a ticking clock, that before a new Trump administration considers the Aryan Brotherhood some kind of an honor guard, maybe we need to lock these indictments down. And if there's a missing kid out in this town, perhaps then the frazzled family might have some loose lips and say some shit that we can use in this indictment. So that is what he is tasked to go do. And this town that he's going to is along Caddo Lake near Jefferson, Texas, and it's called Hope Town. Hope Town in this book is a freedman's community. Um, there are lots of freedmen's, no, not lots, maybe a handful of freedmen's communities left in the state of Texas. So freedmen's communities of ex-slaves right after the Civil War using the Homestead Act in order to gather land and build their own towns that had nothing to do with anybody else. And it was just black folks living out there with schools and banks and uh, churches, juke joints, whatever they needed, it was it there. And the book itself is dedicated to a freedmen's community called Nickton. Nickton, I'm, I'm gonna let y'all take a minute to figure out where that name came from. Nickton is actually where um, my mother's father's people are from. That we, um, I come from people who started one of those communities. So in the book, Hopetown, there's one guy left. There's one black guy left. Everybody else has left. It's been hundreds of years. And there's no real reason anymore in 2016 to have this community per se. If everything is theoretically integrated and there's opportunity everywhere, why do we need to stay here in this tiny little dried up town? He's living there alone with a bunch of Caddo Indians who are, he's letting live on his land. But that little boy's father in the beginning of the book, his people have started squatting on this land. And so Darren Matthews, this black Texas ranger, rolls into a town that's got all this shit going on at once and is trying to find this kid, who it turns out, as sweet as I made him sound in that little opening, that kid ain't that sweet. That kid has sprayed nigger on somebody's wall. He's done all kinds of racial vandalism. And there is a sense that he is beginning to act out what is around him. So that the whole thing about this kid becomes a metaphor about... Let me roll back. I'm going to tell you a story about where this kid came from, and I'll come back. I didn't realize this until the book was done, and the book was in my house. I was taking a shower. Sorry for the imagery. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, that's where that kid came from, where this old story came from. Clara, my daughter, who refused to come tonight, that's 12. She has soccer practice. My, so my daughter is 12. In 2016, so she would have been in fifth or sixth grade, my daughter goes to a super, super, super progressive school here in Southern California. We all feel enlightened out here, right? Her school was in the climate march last week. During health and human development, there's a whole time where we talk pronouns. What does everybody want to be called? Progressive. There was a kid that called, a white kid who called a black kid the N-word at the school. And I was stunned. I was stunned. I was angry. I was so hurt and confused. And my reaction was very much like, anybody from school here, fuck that kid and fuck that kid's parents. They can't sit next to me at back to school night. I don't want to see them. I don't have anything to do with this kid. I start talking 
Not nice things about a child. I was so angry. And I remember vividly on the day of the inauguration, there was a school event. that The kids were putting on some kind of a performance. And I walked in, and Tembi, I saw Dory. I saw the mother of another black child, and I burst into tears. And I was barely holding it together. And what was fueling everything else is the fact that that kid was there with his family. And it was just a soup of heartache in my head. It was Trump. It was, he was, it was happening. Nobody was stopping it. He was taking the oath of office literally while I was sitting in my kid's school, thinking about this young white kid who in 2016 had just called a black boy the N-word in L.A. And this ended up sparking deep, deep, deep family conversations about this child uh, my husband and my daughter at the dinner table, we have probably talked about this, Carl, 20 times. Because I found that I could not forgive this child. And my daughter, for whom the N-word clearly means something different, was willing to forgive him. She said, Mommy, I feel sorry for him. I don't know why he did it. I don't understand it, but something's off. And she's quite deep. And I feel sorry for him. And I was still like, fuck that kid. And I felt like an asshole because I'm like the grown-up. And what it, that's awful. Like, why can't I see the humanity in a child? And this had been going on, like I said, for like two years. And then I understood where this kid in the book came from and how I came to this idea of the metaphor of your Darren is trying to literally find, save this kid. But he's also trying to answer the question of whether or not racism can be stopped or whether it will continue to perpetuate itself into new generations. And I was kind of stunned by how afraid I was to forgive a child. Uh, I mean, he's not gonna do anything to me. And it took, it took this book tour, it took talking about this a lot, it took talking about it on NPR, and then I left, and I was like, ooh, everybody's going to look at me funny when I drop off Claire at school, because I put everybody's business in the street, and I got really nervous. And then beyond that, I felt actual compassion then. And it, the compassion was not even just for the kid. I felt compassion for the kid's mother. Of course, I never used the school's name. I never used the kid's name, but they know who it is. And I felt, I felt compassion for her. I don't know that she knows why her kid did it. I don't know. But it, it started making me feel funny. And I started having these thoughts of, oh, my God, am I going to fucking forgive this kid? Am I going to forgive this kid? Because the kid feels bad about it. Now, you know what he says? He says to Clara, every time he has an interaction with me, your mom hates me. And then I felt bad because, like, it's clear he feels remorse. He's never quite done anything again like it. And somewhere on this book tour, I was like, oh, my God. He's never going to come up to me and be like, Hey, Attica, I feel like things are kind of weird between us. Maybe we should talk. So then I thought, and then Claire has a birthday party in like two weeks. And she, before, she knew, I was like, he's never coming here. He's never, and I realized, oh, crap. If I really forgive this kid, then I have to let, I have to say to her, which I did, that yes, I do forgive him, and yes, he can come to our home. And I'm not going to hold against him what, what I associate that word with. Because for me, it's associated with violence. It's associated with actual violence against me, not just other people. So I did, you know, did some work to kind of separate those things. But I want to read a little piece, if I can find it, about, about forgiveness. Oh, shit. Oh, it's not even important. That's, the, that's, a, that's from Books Are Magic in, a, in, a, in Brooklyn. Thank you. 
I'm going to read this little piece about forgiveness. It's, it's, it's short, but pointed. So this is Darren in the home of Leroy Page. Leroy Page is the last ancestor of Hopetown. Leroy Page had been born in this house, his mom and his grandmama too, he said. His people had settled these parts as free blacks after the Civil War, had built a utopia on the shores of the Great Lake, tilled the soil with the values they held most dear. Not just liberty and self-sufficiency, but also forgiveness. Forgiveness was a word from the Master's Bible that they'd been forbidden to read, but grace came naturally to Leroy Page's ancestors, was built into their DNA, a native intelligence that told them that true freedom was letting white folks go. You could rage over what they'd done or you could be free. It wasn't a twofer type deal. Black folks, Leroy said, are the most forgiving people on earth. Darren couldn't place the look on his face, didn't know if it was pride or shame he was witnessing. It was a point that his uncles had debated ferociously, whether forgiveness made black folks saints or stooges. The year Darren stopped going to church, claiming at 12 to be too old for Sunday school, his uncle William, back in the house in Camilla on some short errand that his brother had allowed, sat Darren down at the kitchen table and said, this family has flourished under the teachings of Christ's son. We have made a life based on fellowship and service and forgiveness. His brother Clayton, his twin brother, actually snickered at the kitchen sink where he was rinsing turnips he'd grown in his garden himself. That word, Clayton said, is dangerous. It gave white folks the idea that impunity was theirs for the taking. For in a world where forgiveness was forever being served like an all-you-can-eat buffet, what was their incentive to pass fair laws, to police with integrity, to refrain from spitting on folks in the street? It's not 1966, Pop, Darren had said, just to show he could keep up. No. It's 1986, and do you see that Alabama cracker that Reagan's trying to put on the federal bench? Sessions will never be confirmed, William said, lighting one of the lucky strikes he smoked until his death. The point is, Clayton said, they they, the point is they have the gall to appoint a Klan-loving fool. Forgiving them for everything before the Voting Rights Act is what makes them think they have the right. We don't, we shall overcome ourselves into this mess. But you marched, Pop, Darren said. This conversation felt like a greater sacrilege than the the talk of skipping out on church. What are you saying? I'm saying you have to forever hold them to account. Look away at your own peril. He set the wet turnips on a washcloth and said, forgiveness has a limit. Now, I don't know if I believe that. Thank you, that's sweet. It's very dark and just whatever, but I don't know if I believe it. I believe Clayton believes it, but I think my life, I'm such a fundamental optimist that I live my life um, wanting to believe in things like forgiveness, wanting to believe in, wanting to believe in everything I could believe in before November of 2016, which was I'm 45, so everything about my life has been a slow, difficult, dangerous, violent, hard as hell march toward equality. But there was always a sense that that's where we were going. So that this, it seemed like we were living King's dream, that we were, we were on that arc of the moral universe and it was bending towards justice. People got hurt along the way. There was tears along the way. There were deaths along the way. But fundamentally it was doing this. And for me to have that yanked out, I was thrown. It literally changed the entire narrative that made me be able to get up every day. I remember my daughter at five, came up with something wild about race. She came up with something crazy. Like somebody had told her that black people drink out of the toilet. And I was like, okay. I was in bonds. I was like, okay, let's get these snacks. And then we're going to get in the car and break it all the way down. And the way that I could do that is I started the big speech to my kid who was five, who said she wanted to hear it. I said, we keep getting better as a people on the planet. 
So then I could go to slavery. I had to start with, we keep getting better. Otherwise, if I just started with slavery, how is she going to function with that? So I have lived and taught my child that fundamentally it is struggle, but it is struggle towards something. And this last thing fucked me up. And why I think I started writing about forgiveness in here is that, and now I can say, I've said this at a couple of book events, but I can put a little umph in it now. Trump will be gone. He will be impeached. He will be indicted. He will drop dead. It will be all three. I don't know. <laughs> but we all still have to live together. And we all still have to live with these people who voted for him. And my thing is, how do we share space together? How do we live in shared space if I know how little you value my life? Or how you were okay with certain things as long as you thought you were getting some kind of e economic bump? What is that? And that's the part of the thing I'm asking myself is how will I be able to or will I be able to um, forgive? I would feel a lot safer in my country if I heard Trump folks be like, you know what? We messed up. I should have, y'all said it, y'all said it day one, and we didn't listen, and we messed up. But we're not getting enough of that, so I don't know what's coming next. Um, so these are the big themes in here. There's, there's a lot of stuff about, it's another intergenerational mystery. So there's stuff with the Caddo Indians, there's stuff about, oh, so Jefferson. So the weird thing about this setting, and then I might read another piece, and then we could just talk, I'm not wearing a watch, so I don't know what's going on, but yes. So this book took place between Caddo Lake and Jefferson. Jefferson, so Caddo Lake is wild as hell. Go Google it and you'll understand why I asked my dad to stay with me when I went to research. I refused to sleep in a cabin on Caddo Lake by myself. Um, there's a lot of like, it's just swamp. It's just swamp and swamp people. And I, we got a little Airbnb. And so my dad and I met in Marshall, which is kind of nearby. He grew up there. And we met at my grandmother's house. And I said, Daddy, did you bring a pistol? I was like, California, whatever. Are we getting a gun? I forget all. I forgot all my politics. I was like, did you bring a gun? And he said, no, I didn't. But your grandmother has one. I said, great. So we took my grandmother Precious's. That is her name. I mean, that's her nickname. We took Precious's gun. And I slept good because we, we were in this cabin and my dad at the front room with a gun and he was by the door. And I was like, this is great. This is fantastic. Um, and we spent a couple of days out there. We went rode on the water out there. We thought we ran on an Aryan Brotherhood uh, hangout, but my imagination might have been getting the best of me. We got turned around. There's no lights out there. And we got turned around on a back road and we rolled up on something and it was too many motorcycles. It just didn't look right. There was just no reason for that many Harleys to be in one location <laughs> at all. Anyway, it was a fun trip. But then Jefferson is, this, is next to Caddo Lake, which is raw and untamed. And Jefferson is like, I think I described in the book that it looks like a little shrunk down New Orleans, but like without a sense of humor and, and without any hint of debauchery. As if, I think I said something like, as if a prostitute found Jesus. Like, Jefferson looks like New Orleans because it has a lot of French influence because in the old days, all the steamboats coming down the Mississippi would do business in New Orleans. They would go through Cattle Lake into Texas. And Jefferson was bigger than Dallas. It was like a big town. And it dried up over the years. There's a lot of big, tall tales from the people there about why it dried up. The main reason is somebody, that something about the level of the lake shifted over time and steamboats couldn't get through anymore. 
And then there's a big story about some big rail baron coming in saying he wanted to turn Jefferson around and that the town people laughed at him. He went, well, then fine. I'll make Shreveport the next big city. And everything past Jefferson by and what they do now other than make syrup. There's a famous maple syrup factory there. Other than making syrup, they basically sell the past. They basically like have a Gone with the Wind museum. They do Civil War reenactments. There's a bunch of ghost tours. Uh, I didn't go on any of the ghost tours. Uh, and I mainly didn't go on the ghost, because come on, y'all. Every time, why could there are no slaves on these ghost tours? You ever notice that? All these plantation tours is always a white woman just, you know, just faint and just walking the halls upstairs. If a slave ghost came back, that would be a show. Now, that I may pay, pay money to go see, but I don't need to necessarily see the whitewashed version of it. But anyway, all that kind of history is in here, and there's also a lot of fun. And I don't know how many people read Bluebird, Bluebird. Enough, enough that I'm going to give you a little taste and I'll shut up. I'm, I got to catch y'all up a little bit with Darren and his mama. Yeah, baby. <laughs> the night Darren Matthews broke into his mother's trailer, he hadn't had a drink in over a month. Well, nothing more than a beer or two, once or twice a week, and always in front of his wife, holding her gaze a few seconds before taking a sip, giving her a chance to speak or hold her peace, and grateful every time for her silence on the matter. Uh, in this newly highly new highly precarious phase of their marriage, she had made her concessions and he had made his. Their home life had stabilized, anchored against the rough waters since their separation and his time in Lark, Texas, by the simple pleasure of good sex, by its power to pluck out the best memories of a marriage for display and make you forget the ugly ones, the damaged plums hiding in the bottom of the bin. He'd forgotten how good it felt to fuck his wife, frankly, the ease with which the act braided together two souls. He'd forgotten how safe he felt with Lisa, how much his sense of himself rose and fell on the waves of her love and attention. And being wanted by Lisa had shifted the balance of power between them in ways that were new to Darren, who had spent their entire courtship and marriage feeling like he was always chasing, convincing, winning over. Now it was Lisa who daily did what she could to please him, to be worthy. The thing with his mother nagged at him, sure it did. But for a while he'd managed to convince himself that Belle's motives were not so much vindictive as they were desperate. She was a woman on the cusp of 60 who lived alone in a rented trailer whose only son was childless and spare in his affections, content to see his mother once a quarter and even less if he thought he could get away with it. Her boyfriend was both married and her boss, and he paid her less than minimum wage to clean toilets five days a week. She hadn't had a man to herself since she was in high school, and she bitterly resented the entire Matthews family for robbing her of what she thought the life marrying Darren's father would have given her. And she nursed her acrimony like a foundling to her breast. The debt had now been laid at Darren's feet. These past two months, he spent every day calling his mother, stopping by her place every weekend, clearing tufts of chickweed and bluegrass from the trailer, swept the stairs and cleaned the gutters without being asked, always leaving a few hundred dollars in a case of beer on his way out. It was a dance they were doing this country waltz, each pretending that Darren was a son who had been waiting for just the right opportunity to take care of his aging mother, that he wasn't here solely now because she was blackmailing him. Although she never used such a crass word, and neither did he. In fact, the one time he asked her directly about the gun, she'd taken it as his way of asking to spend more time with her. Going so far as to invite herself to dinner at his home in Houston, which Darren recognized for the punishment it was. Starting with her ridiculous request for Clams Casino and Black Forest Cake, the recipes for which she'd actually clipped from an ancient copy of the Ladies Home Journal she'd had since she was in high school and mailed to Lisa. And she was drunk when she showed up. 
to their loft in downtown Houston, asking even before before her coat was off where the rest of the house was. Lisa hung Belle's balding fur in the hallway closet and walked her to the dining room table. Their windows looked out on Buffalo Bayou, but Belle wasn't impressed with that either. We got dirty water in the country too, she said as Darren pulled out her chair. Lisa wasted no time setting their first course, and Darren promised himself he wouldn't touch a drop of alcohol all night. Watching as Lisa and Belle raced each other to the bottom of a drugstore, a bottle of drugstore Chardonnay, his mother's sole offering. These past few months, his mother had asked very, I mean, his wife had asked very few questions. She'd accepted his newfound interest in, in a relationship with his mother as a developmental fact of life, an inevitability she'd seen coming long before he had. She saw nothing nefarious in him announcing out of nowhere that he wanted to spend more time with her to look after her more if he could. Twice she'd actually called it sweet. Tonight, her hair up in a thin ponytail, gold drop earrings swinging every time she laughed or nodded, she reveled in hearing Belle tell stories of Darren as a boy, how she put powdered red pepper on his hands while he slept to stop him from sucking his thumb. Teeth would have been bucked here from here to halfway to Dallas if it wasn't for me. How she tied a string from her front door to Darren's first loose tooth to yank that little sucker clean. He didn't know why her stories were all teeth related, but what did it matter? His mother hadn't raised him and didn't have the love and the trust of the men who had, his uncles William and Clayton. It was all of it, a fiction invented between the soup and the main course, except one story she told about standing behind the chain link fence of the playground at his elementary school watching him play. And how she cried later when Clayton got wind of it and told the principal to bar her from the grounds. Is that true? Darren asked. And when his mother mumbled yes, he felt a warmth spread in his throat. His tongue grew useless and he couldn't think of a single, a single thing to say. By dessert, Lisa was tipsy, skin damp and eyes bright and glassy. She looked at him and asked, hey, Darren, why am I just now getting to know your mother? Belle let out a tiny bark-like laugh. What a good question, Darren. Why is your wife just now getting to know me? She waited for him to explain himself, and when he, she was met with nothing but raw silence, she reached for the wine bottle, poured the last thimbleful before rolling her grenade onto the elegantly dressed table, saying, apropos of nothing, what a shame it was that the San Jacinto County Sheriff's Department never found that little thirty-eight that killed Ronnie Malvo. That the thing could be anywhere, but surely someone knew where it was. Why, it would take only a phone call to Mr. Frank Vaughn to solve the crime. She looked at Darren, making sure he understood she knew the name of the San Jacinto County District Attorney as she snapped her linen napkin across the lap of her Lee jeans. What, Lisa said, pressing her fingers against chocolate crumbs on her plate and licking them off. Darren felt protective of her and the peace that had settled over their marriage. His mother would destroy it if he let her. It wasn't enough to threaten his career as a Texas Ranger. Bell Callis wanted his marriage hanging by a string, too. Thank you. I feel pressed. I pr feel pressed to tell everybody before we go to Q and A that somebody in this room actually put red pepper on my fingers while I slept, and then put my thumb in my mouth and then screamed. So maybe somebody just a few years older than me with a sadistic streak. My sister Timby, everybody. <laughs> anyway, anybody have any questions about the book Texas Boots when they see us Empire anything? Yes, sir. I'll start us off. So we're now in the height of the pandemic. There's also another beloved character, Mr. Jay Porter. In any universe timeline, do we ever see a potential crossover? Darren or Dick? I have 
thought about it because you mentioned it, Doug. That's my, that's my brother. I've thought about it, but I don't know. I mean, it would just have to come out organically. It would be interesting because Jay would be an older man. It, I, and I actually would be kind of curious what in the world he would think about somebody like Darren. But that is kind of interesting. I do fear coming across like a one-trick pony that I just kind of toggle between these two characters instead of, I don't know. But yeah, that's possible. It's possible. Anybody else? What are you giggling about, Carl? <laughs> well, we could sign some books. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. Um, when I was about the age of the kid in this book, I was nine. There, we lived in the suburbs in Houston, and so it was, um, I was probably one of the only black kids there at the time. Then it kind of got, there were more. I was really good friends with this kid, Blake. And Blake and I used to play fort and do all this stuff. I was about like eight or nine. And one day Blake asked me to come out. Like he saw me come out of my house. He said, Attica, Attica, come down here. And he was way like, if you can imagine, where the register is. He was way down there, and so I started walking towards him, and then out of nowhere, this other kid who lived on another street, I think his name was Craig, I don't remember, pulled out a gun, it was a BB gun, but I thought it was a gun because it's a rifle, and called me a nigger, and then shot me. And I, it broke skin, I bled, and I thought I'd literally been shot. And I went home, I stumbled home, and you know, I think my memories that police were called, my vivid memory of it is, unfortunately, I don't mean to say anything not nice about either of my parents, but it was such a trigger for them that I, what I don't remember is anybody asking me, was I okay? They were so enraged that it was just like, we got to deal with this kid. Somebody called the police. I remember sitting in my mom's car while she walked into that kid's dad's place of business and cussed him the fuck out. And I sat in the car by myself. And... I get it. I get that rage. I do wish somebody had said, how are you doing, Attica? But nobody did. It just wasn't thought of. So this is why I, that is so extreme. That's why I say it's not fair for me. I don't know why the kid at my daughter's school did what he did, but it's not fair to conflate those two. It, it isn't. It, it, it isn't. Um, though, yes, that's an awful thing that happened. And for me, the, the word, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a black person who's a hypocrite about the word like every other black, I mean, well, maybe not every black person. I mean, it's on my, it's in some songs I have. It's in some songs I listen to. I don't usually use it in conversation. We don't use it in our family in conversation. I don't let Clara listen to those songs. She wanted to me to download Lizzo for her, and I wouldn't do that. Um, but at the same time, I have a dear friend who says it a lot, and every time he says it in, in conversation, it sounds like just an old black man on the corner just with some shit to say, and it makes me laugh every time I hear it. So I'm a hypocrite about it, but the word first and foremost is, for me, connected to Confederate flags and actual danger, like actual somebody might get hurt kind of thing, yeah. Yes, Steph.
Yes, I did never, I never wanted to write a cop because I don't see myself as an authority figure. I don't see myself, I see myself as an outsider. And also, it's like your job to do it. Like, I like stories where, you know, a beautician stumbled on a body at the dumpster and now she's got nail clippers and some acetone to figure it out. Like, that's interesting. <laughs> it's not that interesting if it's your job to do it. So I always thought that was kind of boring. But then, I knew this, if I was doing this series of crimes and there was a character that was going through it, it had to be a ranger. And I, I've said this before, but reading Jill Leovi's book, Ghetto Side, was a game changer for me because it allowed me to understand black people who choose to police and where that comes from. And then once I understood his uncles and that I could take these twin uncles who look exactly alike and let them represent a fracture in the black psyche, then I felt free. I felt free to let Darren have all this roiling in his head where he's not sure about certain things. I'm gonna tell you an interesting thing that I did not put on Instagram. No, I didn't put on Twitter or anything. Timby's like, oh, you should put that out there. I was like, no, 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 black Twitter will eat me alive. I'm not gonna do it. I was just in Richardson, Texas for a paid book event. I didn't really look at the itinerary that closely. And so then I realized that there was a police chief sitting at my table at one of, I did three events over two days. There was a police chief at the table I was like, oh, I don't know about this. So not only did I look him up, I started looking up election results for Dallas County and Collin County from 2016. I need to know who I was talking to. So I get to this thing, and the, the cop comes to my table, and I said, you read the book, right? And he said, yeah. I said, you still want to sit here? And he said, yeah. And he said, Darren Matthews is like my best friend. I just thought he was being nice. I was like, okay, great. But over the course of the next 24 hours, he and I talked several times. He was the one who introduced me at this citywide deal with 250 whoever all these people they chose a cop to introduce me and he certainly mentioned jokes about investigating like who's Attica and had found some things I'd said and he talked about policing and he talked about policing from his point of view which is not the same as my point of view but what he did not do what I said to him afterwards I said I really respect the fact that you did not okay but like you really listened to what I had to say and you didn't try to invalidate what my experience of policing is. And that really meant a lot to me. Uh, and he said to me, he really meant what he said about Darren, that he felt like I had captured what it meant to, to try to serve. And that that was meaningful to him. And he thought that Darren, people like him were the future of policing. And if you had told me when I woke up that morning, I was Googling him. Like, this guy's going to hate. I told Carl, this guy is going to hate me. And by the end of the day, we're Facebook friends. We got pictures together. Like, the whole thing. And I was not going to put this on Twitter because black Twitter can't do nuance. They just they can't. I love them. I love them to death. But I would be roasted alive. So I'm going to have my private relationship with you all know it. And me and C C uh, Chief Pruitt know it. That's all the people that need to know. Um, but that was interesting to me and a reminder sometimes about the power of fiction to kind of cross boundaries you didn't even expect in any way. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Do you have a plan for the future? Do you know how many you have? I think it's just four. But that means I better like start thinking about what happens. Because each time this one ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger too. So each time it's like, oh I'll just figure that out later. But eventually <laughs> I'll have to figure I kinda do. I kinda know where I'm going now. I know the place more than I know the story. I know the place and I think I know where the last one's gonna take place and what happens in it, but I don't really know. I don't know, but I think it's just for, and mainly because I have a fear that I'll never get out. I'll be writing Darren Matthews till I'm 80, and I, it's not 
something I, I don't see myself doing that. So I think when I look back on it, this I I think this little quartet of books, if that's what it turns out to be, I think will be very indicative of the time that we're living in right now. And I did not mean it to be that way. It just happened, and I went with it. Um, Trump was elected after Bluebird was done. It was finished. And it look, it made me look like a genius. It made me look like some Cassandra who just figured all this crazy stuff out. But that's not the truth. I, I thought I was writing crazy shit that we're not going to see anymore in America. And then, oh, oh, we are. Um, it's just so of the era that I don't know. And I think once I'm done with capturing that era, I might be. I hope we're all done with this era soon. Yeah. Hey, nice to see you. Anybody else? Yes. Sure. It was a lot. It was a lot. The hardest, there were two parts that were the hardest. We met all of the men, and we spent time with all of the men. And when I say time, we met with them individually for probably close to seven to nine hours each. And we spent weeks just getting our questions right so that they went in a nice flow that would open people up. It was like, it was like therapy and not close things down. Those sessions were very difficult. Um... They were also exhilarating because they were there and alive and they had survived it. So there was a sense of exhilaration that they were even sitting in an Airbnb in 2017 when we were doing that, functioning. Were they at different places in their functioning? Yes. And I think, I, I'm not telling secrets here to say that Antron has had the, has had the hardest time. I think his brothers in this say this. Antron said, asked us, should I see a therapist? I, I, he's, he, I don't know that he had sat for that long and talked about what had happened to him since it had happened to him, other than when he came and talked to us. He is one of the most gentle human beings I've ever met in my life. So sitting with them and hearing the depth of their stories was a lot to hold. And I do remember writing home one day, like, I, I, I'm, I can't do, I, I'm out. And then I went, wait a second, Attica. You just talked to them for nine hours? They was in prison for all that time? Calm down, little girl, and do what you need to do. So that kind of put in perspective, like, let's not get crazy here. You're listening to people in the comfort of air conditioning, and everybody survived. It's all good. Um, the other hard part for me is that I, I did not want to watch the tapes. I wrote the trial episode, and I, thought, I was like, oh, I'm going to write the whole thing just looking at these transcripts. I can do it. I got the words. But I knew I was avoiding it. And that messed me up. That, mm -mm. they are children who are so tired, who are so confused. It is so obvious that they don't know what the hell they're saying. And they're trying so hard to get it right. It's literally like watching a kid when they don't have to answer right in school and they're like stumbling to get the right, that's what it feels like. And a grown, and other than like, Corey had a girlfriend. I'm sure Raymond had been around the block. Uh, also, other boys hadn't kissed girls. And all of a sudden, words are being put in their mouth, and did you put your penis here? And then who was touching her here? And then did he, did he say it felt good? Like, and they're just like, in a daze. That was the hardest thing for me to do. 
And I remember talking to my therapist at the time and I said, I think I'm writing something bad because I'm not feeling things. I'm, I just, I feel flat. And she said, you're just protecting yourself. It's, o- it's okay. And when I burst open with the tapes that I had been feeling very much like, I, this isn't any good because why am I not crying? This is so big. Why am I not crying? Um, but then when I watched the tapes, it was, it was, I burst open and it, for me in my lifetime feels like the highest and best use of my talent. I'm so honored to have been asked to have met them. They have a core of integrity that has been with them since they were kids. I mean, the, the scene in the book, when they realized that they lied, that they were all tricked. And once they apologized to each other and said, I, I don't know what I was doing in there, man. They have never left one another since. Even when they, it was illegal for them to communicate in prison, they were not allowed to communicate with their co-defendants. They would work out a system where Corey would, actually, I'll tell somebody about Corey in a minute. Yusef might give something to his mom, who would then go back to Harlem and then give it to Antron's mom. The Antron's mom would give it to Antron in his facility. Like, they found a way to stay connected, except Corey, because he was older. And he went right to Rikers Island, and then he went to prison, prison. And Corey is my heart. He is so... Um, wise. She says a very poetic soul. And when you think of the truth of it, which is he only, this only happened to him because he didn't want his friend to be alone. None of the boys had ever been in a police station ever. And I don't know, I'm not sure why Ava cut him. Maybe it was for time or whatever. What Corey actually said when the cop was like, his name's not on it, but then the other cop was like, you know, come down. And Yusuf was kind of like, please, I'm scared. And what Corey actually said is, can I just go say something to my mom real quick so she knows where I am? If you remember in the thing, his mom, Dolores, is like, I don't know where my son is. He said, can I just go tell my mom? The cops said, you'll be back back before she even gets home. And he didn't come home for like 16 years. So Corey talks a lot about, and I'm glad Ava did the project the way she did it in the last episode so it's so his story. And as much as I wanted like 800 Emmys to come out, that Corey's story is the one that got highlighted. Corey always says it was the Central Park Four and then it was me way over here by myself. It was harder to get letters to him. It was, he was just experiencing something completely different. And that they've all honored that he, you went through something worse than us and that they're holding him up. I just love these five men to pieces. I love them to pieces. Anybody else? I can sign some books. Shall we? Let's do it. Thank you guys for coming. This was lovely. Thank you. I'm going to get my pens. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.